Welcome everybody to the Game Audio Podcast. It is episode 56. <laughs> Can you believe it, Anton? No. We're still doing this. So many years, so many podcasts. 56. Uh, I, I, I talked to someone the other day who started with number one, worked all the way through all 56 episodes. Back That's to back? Of, uh, in a pretty short period of time. That sounds like torture. That's that's called binge binge podcasting binge binge casting binge casting. <laughs> you heard it first. Yeah. All right. So the voice you're hearing there is our uh, one of our two uh, very special guests, Guy Whitmore. Hello. In the room with Damien, and on the other side, in the same time where I'm at, but not in the same room, is Rodney Gates. Yes. Hello. Welcome to the yeah, show, guys. Right. Thank you very much. It's pretty cool because it's like. You and I, Anton, we've got both of our co-workers here with us. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, it's boggling minds, man. Yeah. Great to have you both with us today. We're going to talk about, I'm sure, a bunch of different things, kind of chart out the two of yours' career into the industry, talk a bit about that. There's been some really interesting things going on in both of your lives with MIDI, strangely, which was one of the things that came out of the last couple of GDCs as a phoenix from the ashes. And we'll just kind of see where it where it goes from there. Let's kick off with uh, seniority here. Who's Who's been in the game industry the longest? 94 is when I started. Oh, okay. Well, that beats me. <laughs> By 10 years. Okay, Guy, then we'll have you go first and just wow. talk a little bit about uh, your path into games and how how you got here. Yeah, I'm definitely the accidental game audio artist. <laughs> um, in 94, you know, professionally, there wasn't uh, a lot of, certainly not a lot of focus on game audio as a career. Uh, people were starting to make, uh, getting jobs in the industry and, and in certain companies, but it certainly wasn't an open career path that you'd find at a university counselor, with a university counselor. So after graduating from Southern Methodist University, composition, got a master's there, started doing professional work in, in the theatrical world, uh, sound design and com composition for, for a dramatic theater. And that was going really well, except they don't pay really great, even at a good regional level. It just turns out that a buddy of mine, who I also graduated SMU composition, uh, was from the Seattle area, and he moved back to Seattle and got a gig at Sierra Online. And they had another opening, and uh, since we worked so well together at SMU, he called and said, hey, you know, there's this opening. Do you want to go for it? And I said, let me think. Okay, yes, let me go for it. Uh, next thing you know, I've got my, my little four-cylinder pickup with a U-Haul behind it, trying to get over the Rockies to, to Washington State, and that's how I got in the biz. Total accident, but kind of went for it when I saw the opening. I was like, yep. And then as soon as I got the taste, it was like, oh, yeah, this was this was meant to be. So 20 years ago, 21. <laughs> yeah, and what was, the, what was the first game you moved out to work on then? Yeah, it's called Mixed Up Mother Goose Deluxe. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sierra's first CD-ROM title, moving from floppies to CD-ROM on the PC. And uh, we got, I got to do an entire recorded soundtrack. There was the, the game shipped with an audio CD uh, soundtrack of the game. Got to set Mother Goose rhymes to different pop and rock and blues styles. And then in the game, you would, your character would try to put the rhymes together. Little, little Bo Peep gets matched up with her sheep. And when you match them together, you get the reward song, you know. 
and uh, etc. Really, really cool game. I think it still actually plays on PCs. And uh, yeah, that was that was the kicker that started it all off. Sure, and it's been Seattle ever since. Has been Seattle ever since. Several several companies and incarnations. Uh, but yeah, I haven't looked back from from the great Northwest since moving here. Right, and crazy times is that uh, that guy grew up over in a small town over in Wisconsin, of course. Woo! You know, Minneapolis represent right here, and, and so there's kind of a Midwest contingent uh, out here in Seattle for sure. Yeah. Definitely feels like a second home. home definitely. Home. It definitely feels like, felt like coming home, actually, because there's pine trees, stuff like that. Right. That we have in Wisconsin. The yeah. Texas does not. Right. <laughs> exactly. Now, you did make a sojourn through Dallas. Right. So at some point. It was Chicago, yep. undergrad, Dallas, yep. grad school, yep. and then up to Seattle. Gotcha. And now, post-Sierra, you had uh, you know a storied career across Seattle, uh, Monolith, Monolith. Yep. and uh, right before PopCap here at Microsoft. Right. And you were actually... You know, in on the ground floor with some of the di- direct music producer stuff that was going on right. um, at Microsoft back in the day. Yeah, and oddly enough, I wasn't at Microsoft during most of that. So direct music was an early, just for those who don't know, a really amazing interactive music creation tool. It had its shortcomings, but it had a ton of power under the hood. And I actually started using a predecessor to that while I was at Monolith, and that led to the interactive technology and techniques we used at Monolith for games like No One Lives Forever and Tron 2.0 and Blood and a whole series of games uh, there. That's definitely where I started really exploring the, the high adaptive interactive dynamic music. Yeah, so we'll circle back to some of those techniques, I think, as we move forward because I, I think, uh, you know, your, your history there has really, uh, I have seen it, directly apply to techniques you're using today and with some of the new tools and pipelines for MIDI that have that have come out and uh, so we'll circle back to that at some point but um, but then you spent a few years at Microsoft um, kind of organizing the the um, what did they call it, the central services group or, yeah uh, and then yeah finally here where you're the audio director and have been working on a bunch of stuff uh, including, you know, music for Peggle, Peggle Blast, mm-hmm. uh, and directing the Plants vs. Zombies projects and various bejeweled incarnations. Yep, yep. It's been <laughs> totally fun to come back and uh, after not uh, writing not much music while at Microsoft, that wasn't my role there, but coming and getting back into composition as my mainstay in adaptive uh, music has been kind of like coming full circle again in many, many ways both going back to more of a universal style of gameplay rather than core gaming, um, coming back to writing music and writing ad- highly adaptive scores. So it's been a good a good cycle. Excellent. And now, Rodney, back back on your turf, what was, what was your first gig in? Well, for me, in 2001, I think, or maybe 2002, in my old computer at the time, I popped in a copy of Medal of Honor Allied Assault in my PC. This wasn't the PS2 version, but the PS the PC. And I started playing through it. And of course, back then, World War II was huge, right? I mean, Private Ryan came out in 97, and then Band of Brothers series came out in 2001. So it was very hot as far as, a, as, far as a stories to tell. So, and I remember about halfway through playing this, feeling like it was a film. 
uh, with everybody that was involved at EA at the time. I had no idea, really. And, and I, I already completed my um, all of my audio production recording uh, training and schooling and stuff like that. But game audio was never on the horizon at that time in 1997, for, for me, at least in Arizona at the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. So I was always trying to find my niche, like what should it be? I didn't want to go into music production, really. I didn't really want to do that kind of thing. So after playing this game and hearing what it sounded like, I was like, you know what? This has to be a job somewhere, right? This, this has to be one of those things where people get up in the morning, go here, and record weapons or whatever it is that, that they did and put these into the game to make it sound so realistic, you know? So over the next couple of, or next year or so, I worked on some custom demos that I did that didn't even have video. They were just little two-minute stories of different scenarios that I wrote a script for and, you know, was all geeky about it. And I said, you know what? I've got this one collection of sound effects that I bought on CD from Hollywood Edge, a general collection, but I don't have all these other sounds that I need. How am I going to capture all these? So I got... Every time I got a tax return, I would go out and get like a Rycote blimp and a DAT recorder and all this stuff. And I started just running around Arizona, all these different rural locations, recording what I needed to do. And anything I didn't have a sound for, I had to get creative um, and, and create just from scratch. So <clears throat> thinking back, it's one of those times where, you know, you're not doing this for a job. You don't have a deadline or whatever. So it was one of those things where the, the creativity knew no bounds. Like you said, like, well... I need a car pulling up to a curb in the rain in, at some mansion in Poland. And there's no water in Arizona, and it never rains. So how do, how do I create the sound of the tires through the water kind of thing? It was one of those things. So I had, a, I had a great time creating these demos, and I just mailed them out blindly, not knowing anybody, just getting some addresses off the web, that kind of thing. And um, there was one company that I mailed a demo to that I almost didn't mail a demo to because I thought the name was ridiculous. It was called Sammy Studios. And it was the predecessor to High Moon, which is in Carlsbad, California. But Sammy was the nickname of the CEO of um, whatever Sammy corporate in Japan that created all these pachinko gambling machines in Japan that were a huge hit. They were millionaires. So they wanted to open up a studio in Southern California that had to do with AAA games, right? So it was one of these things where... They hired a bunch of um, uh, expats, if you will, from Midway that had left or maybe left for High Moon, started the new studio, and I kind of got in there on the ground floor under Paul Lackey, who's now at Blizzard. He was previously at EA, and then previous to that, he was at, at, uh, at Sammy slash High Moon. So he got all these demos all the time, just like we all do. And, um, and so he listened to mine, and I was these silly stories that I had done or whatever. For some reason, it stuck in his head. And so I got an email from him maybe six months later after thinking that all of this was just a moot, you know, attempt at trying to break into the industry from scratch and said, hey, we might have a junior position opening up in about six months. And, you know, if you're still interested, I'll contact you at that time. And I was like freaking out, you know, because I was working in wholesale printing was what I did before for like maybe 10 or 12 years and uh, on and off trying different things. I worked professionally in comic books for a while. I waited that time, and that six-month period was like the longest wait in my life because it was one of these things where I'm like, I want to kick off this new career. I don't know what it's all about yet, but it's very exciting, and, and I <laughs> thought I had something to contribute. So it was one of those things where waiting took, took a while. But then finally I went, I interviewed. I was the only person being inter interviewed for the gig, and I got it. So I was totally shocked. And I was like, yes. So that kicked off the, uh, the career at High Moon. I was there for about five years. Then moved on to Sony Online, worked in the MMO game front for a while. And then what excited me about coming over to um, the Netherlands to work with Anton specifically and Gorilla 
was the fact that here's this, here's this uh, really cool team with a really great uh, pedigree of game audio in the past, right? And back to AAA audio that works in the console front, which is I was excited about. And I was like, wow, you know, working on games with stories is fun. You know, this is one of those things. We're all about storytelling, doing what we do. You know, this is, this is part of our discipline. And so that's, that's kind of what led to uh, us, us coming out, my whole family coming out here uh, to, to, to Amsterdam and, and the Netherlands uh, last, I guess, January. Yeah, so it's been a few months that we've been out here. We've been having a great time. So um, nice. that's kind of it in a nutshell, I guess, if you will. So I guess I love I love that epiphany moment though. Like, there's got to be someone who does this job, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, where did these gun sounds come from? Who's recording this stuff? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. yeah, love it. And that you had the ability to just, uh, you know, because you had already come through audio school. It felt. Did you feel like you had and were equipped with at least the techniques for recording and reproduction? So then it was kind of just yeah. making some some leaps to understanding how that could work. Yeah, it was certainly a sound design draw for me. I was always one of those guys watching all the behind the scenes features I could get my hands on, DVDs and things, trying to learn whatever I could, you know, and, and back then a lot of the information wasn't on the web as freely as it is today. You know, like like right. nowadays, like if, if, if there's a lazy student in a school, I'm like, dude, you know, get, get off your ass. There's so much information out there you can just pull down at any moment. And there's so many tools you can grab because I didn't learn anything about game audio tools until I was in the industry. In 2004, yeah. when I started, there was there wasn't Weiss, there wasn't FMOD, there was nothing that you could grab, you know. Well, and did High Moon roll their own? They had their own um, audio engine. Yes, at first they did, and then they rolled into um, Unreal 3, like a lot of studios did, uh, in 2005 or 6 when we worked on the next title, and. Um, but the whole audio portion was written by kind of a genius audio programmer who used uh, the, the FMOD API and then rolled it into Unreal. So it became this tool where you couldn't, you know, it, it didn't really lack anything. It was almost like anything else he was adding to it just became icing on the cake. It was almost anything you could imagine at the time um, you could do in this, in this uh, particular engine, which was really cool. Yeah, and so those and first couple games were games like Dark Watch. Right, and, that's right. And then uh, it was followed by the Bourne Conspiracy, based on the Bourne, Jason Bourne yep. franchise from Robert Ludlum's estate, which was a lot of fun. It took three years to make that game, but it really let us blossom into the Unreal Engine and stuff, which was quite fun. And then when, and of course, you know, each game that came out, just before it came out, there was like a parent company shift, you know? That kind of thing happens where, right. oh, now it's not being published by so-and-so. We're owned by whoever, you know? And uh, so then what, once Activision took over uh, High Moon, which is, which is where they are now, um, at that time they're like, oh, all these sequels you're working on for Dark Watch and, and, and the Bourne series, we're canning them. You're doing Transformers. And we're like, what? Like, that's kind of cool. But, you know, growing up for me personally, it was, I was more of a Voltron fan, right, as opposed to Transformers. So I was like, ah, Transformers is cool and all, but, you know, it wasn't really <laughs> my shtick. So I hung out there for a while. We got the game to Alpha, the first got Alpha, and that's when I got the gig over at uh, SOE, thinking we'd uh, kick off a few MMOs and, and, and have some fun there for a while. So, yeah. Uh, well, excellent. And that, I guess, to circle around, I guess, to what uh, we were hoping to chat about between the two of you is, you know, Rodney, with, with your um, educational background uh, at uh, CRAS, was that it? Right. That's right, uh, Crass. Yep. And and then guy with with a lot of the technologies that you worked with early on, 
and now kind of the reemergence of MIDI and then kind of segueing into the guitar monics library that you've been creating later, lately, Rodney, uh, just to kind of <laughs> mash all those things up into this giant ball of, right. uh, you know, sample library technology and and kind of where we have ended up circling back around to MIDI in this generation. Well, actually, I guess it'd be... I want to summarize, to summarize what you just said. I remember just GDC, a guy ending the talk with a question to all the sample library creators to start making stuff for WIs. And yep. I think one of, one of the people uh, uh, working on that right now is Rodney. So I was like, ah, perfect. <laughs> nice. Let's talk about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then, and the reason I, you know, brought that up is because like so many things in our industry, um, there's never a straight line of progress. It's either, it's, you can either look at it like the stock market where it's like dips and gradual process or a spiral where it's kind of goes, the same cycle goes around and around. And this cycle has come back where mm. in the late nineties, I actually did license um, a set of uh, uh, samples for No One Lives Forever. Um, and that was from Jennifer Jennifer Huruska, yeah. yeah, and her company at the time. Um, so, and that worked out really well. But it was the only example of that that I'm even aware of. And was that a DLS, a downloadable sounds bank, or uh, was it an XMF that came after that? No, or? it was DLS two. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was ah. the format, an open format that the uh, IA Sig put together. And it's still sound fonts. Yeah. Well, sound font <laughs> three is equivalent to DLS two. Ah, is it? So, ah. so if you had a sound font, that's why they did this. They had an agreement with Creative. I'm kind of jumping the shark here a little sure, bit. Sure, that's okay. But uh, we'll get our history straight in a little bit. <laughs> um, so, if you had sound fonts, that's partly why they did it because they knew that there were a lot of sound fonts out there, and people like Jennifer's company. Um, could easily convert their sound font stuff to DLS or vice versa. So there was a time period right there in the late 90s, early 2000s, where sample banks were, you know, exchangeable a little bit more easily. Gigasampler could kick out DLS2 banks, and that's how I would create them. Um, well, and so if just, just to clear up some of the methodology and terms that we're throwing yeah. around, right, <laughs> we're talking about a sample bank format, which is a combination of... Wave files, mm-hmm. audio files, and channel information that relates to the, you know, information coming from a MIDI file. Yeah, and it's the those samples and how they're um, laid out across a keyboard or yeah. or layer, just like you would in any software um, sampler such as Contact, etc., that are the more common ones today. It's just that uh, in a game we need it to be much smaller. And, Right, and so a lot of times were those were those DLS those sound fonts and whatnot compressed already going into it? No, or they might be downsampled. Downsampled, but there wasn't gotcha. any compression to speak of. Right, so there was no MP3 DLS. No. There was no, you know, maybe did we have ADPCM in those formats? Not that I ever used. Nope. No. Okay, so we're talking strictly downsampled, you know, full frequency wave files. Yeah. And maybe ADPCM, I, but I, yeah. Again, probably not a lot of great tools for for 
managing and modifying those kind of sample banks either, really. Right. You know, I wonder if we should dial the clock back a little bit. Let's. So that we can kind of get to why sample banks in the first place. So to go back before I w any of us were in the industry, uh, if when you go back to the early consoles, Sega um, and Nintendo, of course, uh, and I don't know much about the specifics of their technology, but it is the notion of MIDI-like data triggering samples. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know exactly how they're set up there, but that goes back to the earliest of video games. Samples or synthesis, yeah. Right, and or direct synthesis, right. Yep. Um, now, in the mid-90s, there was this thing that came along uh, called General MIDI. And those, <laughs> how many here have actually had to make general MIDI files? I made I one not. once. I <laughs> have not. Okay. Basically, these were games. These were games on the PC, uh, where only the only delivered music was a MIDI file or a collection of MIDI files, and the sounds themselves were dependent on what the gamer had on their sound card on their PC. Usually, huh? a creative. Hard-coded on the, on, the, on the sound card. Not right, hard-coded. No, not software at all. I mean, just living on the chip of the sound card. Um, and, and phones continued this long yeah. after that for the same reason, because there wasn't memory on a floppy disk for much other than a MIDI file. Um, so it had that advantage. It saves a lot of memory. Uh, but you can easily imagine the disadvantage of, like, you have no idea what your music's going to sound like. You got a 16-channel FM synth chip on a, this Creative Sound Blaster and maybe 32-channel wavetable-based uh, sampler on a different one. Or somebody actually has the Roland Sound Canvas and you're trying to make them all sound decent. It was uh, painful at best. Uh, so right, it's like, it's like composing for an orchestra that could change on each person's computer. Right, you might get the LA Philharmonic one week and, you know, <laughs> the Community Kids Orchestra the next. Right. <laughs> and you're not sure how to how to write for them and one's using kazoos and the other one is actually using instruments, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, that's that's kind of what it's like. And so, you know, Mix Up Mother Goose's uh, background game music was General MIDI mm -hmm. and uh, uh, couple other games I did but but that soon as the notion of actually me being able to deliver sample banks with the MIDI files because the equalizer there is everybody hears the same thing yeah everybody gets what I intend as a composer they're hearing the instruments and the sonorities that I intend so you deliver the sample banks with the MIDI files boom you have the space savings um, plus the sample banks which are still pretty efficient and there you have it. You have kind of uh, the consistency of sound. So that's why that aspect is so critical, so critical. And sure, of course, that came up. I just want to say at that time, and I've, I've, we've got some younger listeners who might not remember that at some point getting PCM audio at all for a game was not possible. So you didn't have right. sound effects that were sample-based. They were all generated synthesis synthesized and any music would be playing from MIDI because that was the only thing you got. I remember the first game I ever played that had PCM audio I believe was Warcraft 2 
if mm-hmm. I don't remember. And that was playing it from Redbook Audio from the same right. disc. So the re- CD-ROM part was the first 100 megs. And then the next 500 megs from it were just audio that was playing through the PC as if it was a CD player. So Yes. So we had the that, opposite that's, problem. That's the era we're talking about here. <laughs> so <laughs> we went from the most nimble, small little file to these big, oafish, uh, beautiful-sounding things that really had no correlation to the game whatsoever other mm. than being written in a mood that sounds good with the game. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And that's the CD-ROM era, era ushered that in. Well, and really, I think we've been... I think game audio has been grappling to get that interactivity back over right. these in interim years, right? First with, um, you know, the ability of a modern middleware tool set to, let's say, beat sync and orchestrate transitions uh, between wave files. Uh, and then, you know, more recently, uh, well... Direct music producer, again, an important stepping stone there because um, that was kind of a hybrid tool set that allowed for both MIDI, mm-hmm. sample banks, and wave file and, playback right. um, to a pretty de- pretty high degree of, of dynamic interaction, right? Yeah, high, lots of features, um, lots of potential, uh, low on the usability uh, for the cr- creators like us, and that's probably what made it um, uh, a challenge for it to, to get any ahead of steam going and, a, and a, a large community behind it. Never got a large community of users behind it, and that's just a good lesson for anybody making tools. You can create the best engine in the world, a Ferrari engine, but if you don't have a steering wheel, no one can drive it. Is the analogy I use. Uh, totally and and from there you've got then so you got the red book thing happening you got sample based playback and then i almost feel like boom cell phones hit and they plugged in general midi right so Uh, so we're back to general midi again yeah uh meanwhile on the console side right we're getting better tools um more pipelines for sample based playback and and manipulation uh, but we almost hit a reset button with, with cellular technology because we didn't have the space on early cell phones. And they were maybe smart enough to put a general MIDI chip into mm-hmm. all those early phones. I wanna, so that's kind of... Yeah, the yeah. cell phones, but I want to... Uh, uh, the one exception to this has been Nintendo, who have always, I think, kept MIDI music in, yes. in all that of their games. Consistent. So I think it's to me kind of obscure how they handle their stuff but at least as far as consistency with this line they are the the exception for games totally i would say so too even up to the wii generation if not wii u currently oh, yeah. yeah but i and i think that they've sort of been forced by their mm, focus on mobile all the time so it kind of ties into what you were saying with cell phone but because you know the the Game Boy, and after that, you know the the Nintendo DS has been such a important force for them. Uh, you know, true. Yeah, yeah. It's part of their part of the DNA. It's like there's these parallel histories, partly because of you know the other consoles. You know, there seems to be running on this other path where wave 
um, and and fidelity, I guess for lack of a better word, became you know uh, a premium that composers wanted. But yet Nintendo really stuck to the notion of uh, both. The, I would say both the aesthetic of MIDI and their samples that that games like Mario started out with, uh, but also the flexibility. I think their their DNA of ha keeping that ability to change an orchestration of a of music on the fly and, and those kind of things were part of their DNA. So you have this parallel history. So every time we talk about the rebirth of MIDI, you have to go, yep, well, Nintendo's been there. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Super Mario Brothers composer Koji Kondo, of course, you know, the depth of interactivity of his musical scores, like you're saying, I think there's so many great examples of it. And uh, there's actually a, a book coming out by uh, a company that does these this series called 33 and a Third, and it's all about the music of Super Mario Brothers. And there are so many great examples of interactive music or even dynamic music that changes based on gameplay in that series mm -hmm. that it's hard to imagine how that would have been compromised by changing to right. the sample-based playback methodology, mm -hmm. right? Uh, without the kind of tools, technology, CPU resources to manipulate things at that granular level or at that lower level, which is what I think really what ha has maybe, is that why we're where we are today is because our resources have finally caught back up with um, our ability to do these things with samples? Or, you know, why, why MIDI now? Why has it come back? Yeah, what do you, what do you think? Why me? Well, now? you know, when I saw guys talk in 2014 at GDC, at the end of it, after Peggle 2, he was discussing, there was a standing ovation. So obviously there is, there is desire for this to be back in our uh, profession, right? What, what everything that was started back in the day with direct music and everything like you guys are mentioning, it's starting to get this resurgence back in simply by adding MIDI back in with a little bit of control, which you know, for engines like Wise and things like that, it's it, it, it almost seems trivial that you could put this kind of thing in there, but yet it's huge for anybody who's looking to write interactive stuff that's gonna that's gonna be based on what the player is doing. Um, so <clears throat> to me it really feels like, you know, this this rebirth like we've been discussing, um, it has, has been long overdue and it's uh, it's something that we have the capability of doing as as well as maintaining the fidelity that we're used to for these past you know, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, um, and pushing it forward. So even if we're starting off in, in uh, you know, with sort of baby steps once again in, in, in some ways, it's, um, it's something that's, that's going to continue to grow and become uh, even, even, you know, what I foresee in the future is whether it's a large sample company or small like me or whatever, it's going to be one of these things where you're going to buy X library because you're a composer and you're working in games and you say, you know what? Oh, you're working on that pl platform. I also have this port version here that comes along with it. It's almost like getting the digital copy with your Blu-ray so that the kids can see it on the iPad or whatever, that kind of thing. It's one of these things where it's going to be licensed together probably down the road um, that's going to become available. And all of a sudden the palette is going to explode. And all of a sudden, you're going to have all this capability. And even if you have all of this music that was recorded with an orchestra somewhere or doing whatever, that kind of thing, there's going to be samples that are kind of tied in with that or maybe even sampled from those sessions that are going to allow it, this, it, this level of interactivity with the same kind of fidelity that hasn't existed before. That's, that's kind of what I see is coming. And I think it's huge. 
And I've been starting to reach out to other sample developers to let them know, you know, this this wall is coming, you know, like the White Walkers are coming from beyond the wall kind of thing. It's like <laughs> time to jump on board. So um, that's something that, that I was excited about. And since I had a simple basic kind of library that I kicked off my whole company with, I thought, well, this, this might not be too difficult to convert over and, and try out, you know, like the last version of Weiss I had used was at the tail end of 2013. So it didn't have any MIDI capabilities until, and then I saw guys <clears throat> talk at GDC. And at the end, when he got the standing ovation, I was like, okay, this is, this is something big that's going to happen here. This is something to pay attention to once again. Um, so but I think you're right in saying the original question. So well, but I, I think <laughs> that where you started from was, was that the fidelity really has come to a place where, um, you know, obviously MIDI doesn't sound like anything, right? Right. The sample banks sound like something. That's and, correct. And I think that, uh, it's a what? it's a two a two way street. It's it, you know it, if you have a crappy performance in a MIDI file, it, whatever samples you put to it is never never going to sound good. But what we what we were talking about was why now, and I think yeah. the why now partly, but I think I already know this is not really the answer uh, because of your 2015 talk, but partly is because of memory budgets on the PS4 oh, for yes. Peggle Two. The amount of memory you had for sound was, I think, about twenty times the, me the yeah. budget you had for a PS3 right. title. So right, we had about eight hundred megs. Yeah, eight hundred, eight hundred. Fuck. So sorry, <laughs> it was forty times what I had on the PS3 for Killzone Two and Three. So yeah, you have a bit to spare then to yeah. do some funny f stuff you never tried before. Like, so, fuck, we just put a whole sample bank in there. Building on what you guys said, which is totally right, it, the, the moment is right for, for several reasons. One is quality, one is size, and where those two things come back together again. Um, to kind of, again, take the, the, the history train back in time for a moment, um, I came into the industry right when CD-ROMs hit, and there was a lot of, right at that moment, you know, iMuse and the folks um, down there with Lucas Mon Arts, yep. yeah, LucasArts doing Monkey Island, and those, they were doing some really, really genius stuff. But just as that kind of stuff was happening and direct music was hitting, this, the other trend of, oh my God, we can record our orchestras now. And that hit the industry, the music side anyway, like a tidal wave. The horns sound like horns, and right. the strings sound like strings. And a lot of, and I will say, both producers and composers, but mostly composers, were so excited by that that they were willing to toss out any semblance of interactivity, right? The difference some was them, so big. It's, right, right. The, if, you know, if going you go from, from general MIDI to just a full-on orchestra, the emotional impact of that sound is ridiculous. It's shocking. Yeah. So it's very understandable that they that they would let that go and it you know that embedded itself and i think we lost those techniques to a good degree amongst composers of that era and it's taken a long time plus tools to come back for it to be even you know uh something that's reasonable to do within the industry and now the tools are coming back even before midi was dropped in to wise the amount of interactivity we were able to do with both FMOD and WISE uh, made, made things much more available. So interactivity started making a comeback even with 
the high fidelity recordings. And now we can record things in stems and we can record things in sections, which is more the Peggle 2 approach. There wasn't MIDI there. But I always knew that MIDI would be important even in those scenarios. But of course, having to fit it in five megabytes was what made me specifically say, we got to have MIDI. And thankfully, Wise was bringing it back. So it was a convergence of need and availability that that made me go, yep, we got to do this. Um, and workflow, right? And, and yeah. having a pipeline because, you know, MIDI has always existed in FMOD. You've always been able to plug in MIDI and DLS sound banks. It's always been there behind the scenes under the hood. Uh, I worked on a uh, Tales of Monkey Island with Telltale and Mike Land, the one of the original composers for uh, the Monkey Island series, composed all the music with MIDI, created DLS sound banks, and behind the scenes in FMOD wired the two up. But it wasn't really a pipeline. No. And the only reason we were able to do that was because Mike had lived in that world. And he's a programmer. And he's a programmer by trade, right? Yeah. Whereas with the with the with wise entering the MIDI market, uh, there was finally a pipeline for you to be able to step in and and do things right in a way and but, take advantage of all the interactive uh, music capabilities that were already inherent in wise. True. And, and but uh, but that for me it's also key sort of that the game demanded it for one reason or the other. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. And so it's sort of also. Uh, um, outside of the game audio specific sphere something you're sort of seeing in games themselves if you know back when you started with the Medal of Honor series in back in those days those were very linear shooters you know the first uh, first kill zone is the same thing and sort of in general you're seeing that all of that is as things become more powerful we're sort of expecting to see the same level of fidelity in every department whether it's visuals or, or uh, VFX or even game design, and then expanding it to be as interactive as it was at the start of things, you know. So then music obviously will have to follow. If the game is as interactive as it is, then you can't be behind anyway. So, so. Yeah. yeah, so the game really does drive, the gameplay did super drive uh, Peggle Blast music creation in that uh, it was such a tight loop and you still had this idea of progression that you wanted to maintain coming from Peggle 2. Right. It definitely felt like that. But like you said, there were all of the interactive music tricks that were in the box before were still applicable, but now you had this other level of you know, MIDI yep. and sample bank functionality. Now, when you jumped in and and uh, this will be go to to Rodney next, I think. But jumping in to create sample banks for the first time in Wise, it's not like opening up a Beatnik editor or, you know, some proprietary DLS sound bank thing. Mm -hmm. How was that process, and did it feel intuitive again jumping back into that world, or were you the, were you able to carry some things forward, some from the past? Definitely was able to carry some things forward in the past. So, uh, so obviously the concepts were consistent. Um, and actually, Direct Music had a pretty excellent sample builder uh, for mm -hmm. DL making DLS sounds. That's, uh, and Wise feels obviously like it has more um, evolution 
to do in terms of what it looks like. It doesn't look like a sample editor people are used to in, in contact, but Rodney can speak a lot more to that. But that said, you know, in terms of techniques like, oh, I know, you know, to, to be efficient, I need to do these in fifths or octaves or single layer things. I, I knew all those tricks, and those really came back to help <laughs> me uh, get this thing under, you know, a couple megs of sample bank size. So that was all there, so I knew what I had to do. It was just figuring out the specifics of how WISE worked, and it, it works really easy if you already know the WISE audio flow. So um, it's not, you don't see the keyboard to map directly. That would be nice. But it, it's, a, it's a really, really good, very pragmatic start for them on this. And hopefully they'll, they'll kind of evolve it as they go. Or maybe someone else will actually build a, a sampler plugin that uses a common format. And then we could actually import things f that we've built in contact or other places. Hello, native instruments. Woo! <laughs> what about you, Rodney, on your side? You've been bouncing between the, the contact and wise worlds. What's that, how's that felt? Well, you know what, the transition, once I, once I learned a couple of steps, was actually simpler than I thought it would be. I mean, I, I don't have complex, you know, crazy scripted instruments or whatever that are going off. They're kind of like one-shot instruments right now. But if I was doing true legato or anything that I really wanted it to sound really real, um, you know, some of the scripting stuff might not quite be there yet with Wise. But, um, but for the kind of libraries that I had already available that were just sitting around, um, I, I was quite surprised at, at how easy it was to translate over. I just had to take a look at a couple of things. Like, obviously, the project adventure helped me a lot. Um, and as, especially with the addition of MIDI. The sample project that comes with the WISE installation helped me a lot. I was able to look at the hang drum and some basic stuff that was in there um, that, that already existed to figure out how am I supposed to map this, how do I map the keyboard controls from my controller to it, that kind of thing, just so it, it basically acts like contact, right? So um, once I started going, I was like, oh, okay, I gotta create these particular kinds of containers, drop the samples in, you know, I chose like three round robins versus five to try to keep the size down a little bit. And, uh, and then I figured I'd play with compression at the end of it. And then start plugging everything in, giving it its note range that, that, that it needed. And it, since I was already used to working in the actor mixer hierarchy from the previous project that I worked on, mm -hmm. it, it just felt very intuitive. You know, I was able to jump right in. Because when you first look at WISE, you're like, I'm not sure about this. But then as you use it, you start realizing the brilliance and simplicity behind stuff, but yet also the power, right? So uh, after just working in it for a couple of months and probably bugging you, Damien, on Twitter, um, you know, on the previous project, I was like, oh, okay, this is really coming together. And once you start, once you have it connected to the game, then it really starts making sense about what you need. Um, but for me, I was just like, well, okay, I'm, I've got my contract library. It's already out there. Um, so how do I convert this over? So I started plugging in the same exact values and setting up the velocity, you know, envelopes and things that were similar that I had in contact. And they do play stuff back a little bit differently, you know, especially with, with, with velocity layers and that kind of thing. And there's a little bit more of a delay uh, that you get when you're playing your controller into WISE. Um, and, uh, but that's just simply because it's not using like an ASIO driver or something like that along the lines on the PC side. Right. Um, it's still um, in that basic stage where you can plug in this data and you can import MIDI clips, but I don't, I, I don't know that you can generate MIDI clips. Just, I don't know if you can write anything directly that way in WISE. And once you have your velocities nope. set, you can't adjust those quite yet either. But I think that stuff is coming. 
which is going to be pretty exciting, um, be just because the instrument responds a little bit differently. But there, there were things in Weiss, the way that the instrument responded, that I liked better than Contact, which was kind of funny. Uh, cool. You know, it's, it's, it's real-time pitching. Like, I, I hooked up the uh, pitch wheel to it, and I could drop several octaves down in Weiss, you know, compared to Contact, which is pretty fun. Yeah. And it sounded really smooth. I mean, obviously, you get the, everything gets dark when you drop it down that low if you're working at 48K. But it was still really exciting to be able to hear that be so responsive, you know, when I was just playing it here at my desk. And uh, so for this library, I think all in all, because it, it, it was a bit of a test, Anton said, hey, you know, we, we might do a, a, a podcast about MIDI and the current middleware tools. Um, I, you know, how about in about a month after I was just thinking about putting this together? And I thought, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, maybe that would be all right. Maybe I'll have something ready by then. But literally in about three weeks, I had the entire um, library and all the patches converted over. So once I got wow. one done, because in Wise you can copy and paste, copy and paste, and just swap out samples, it was like a breeze, you know, to put this together. So it, it went much quicker than I thought. So I don't see why there's any kind of barrier, except for if you're learning Wise for the first time. Um, you know, th there really isn't a real big barrier uh, to entry here, which is probably something that guy could speak to as well. Having, you know, he's been combining music and MIDI uh, now for for a little while, probably sort of the the godfather of this in this new generation I think you know which is kind of cool <laughs> um, but for me just being a basic sample developer it was it was pretty exciting to jump in here and and I would look forward to the stuff that they will add later that will give it more capability like what contact has to have available for a, a real-time in-engine uh, solution so just curious like how, what's the the memory consumption of an instrument that you build versus the one that you get uh, ship in the contact version Right, right. That's a that's a pretty good question. I'm going to jump to <laughs> my uh, folder here real quick. It's still quite large, of course, and I'm using it. I think it's like the uh, the high quality Vorbis. I think is what I'm using right now, uh, as far as that goes. But the the original library uh, with the compressed NCW format for Contact was sitting at about seven point something gigs. So let me take a look at the at the current one I have in here. And see the original folders it, for your guitar monics wise is 12 one megs, uh, gigs, sorry. 12 gigs. 12 mm -hmm. gigs for the original folders before they get compressed. Oh, before compression, okay. Oh, right, before compression. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's what I'm looking at right now as well. So let me see. That might be everything because that was all in the project itself. Once you sort of get into this interactive music, you sort of have to go full on. Right. If you want to do anything really spectacularly different tempo-wise or orchestration-wise, you can't really settle for like you sometimes do in sound effects. Like sometimes in sound effects, you go, okay, this part, an ambient, for example, is just static looping three-minute file that we stream in, and then we add spot effects on top of it. Right. Like it's not sure. really this generation, last generation stuff. But that's sort of how you can fill in the world and make it sound dynamic and get away with having high fidelity stuff on the side. But if you have a music track and you want to make it interactive, then you almost have to go full on, I'd say. No. No? <laughs> no. Um, no, you don't. I think Great. that's one of the, it, it's kind of a misnomer because uh, it's just my opinion, though. But Well, your opinion now, as the godfather of all of this stuff uh, counts, so <laughs> it's good. I think, I think we need a different title here. <laughs> I, am going to, I am going to Italy, so I don't know if that... But think of it this way. Now that uh, you can combine the best of both worlds, you could have a fully orchestrated pre-record uh, stereo track or set of stems 
playing or just straight up looping with sprinkled um, stingers playing MIDI over the top of it, MIDI and sample banks over the top of it. And that in be sync. In sync, yeah. yeah. And, and some degree of interactivity or even just a couple of longer uh, wave-based segments transitioning to each other, again, with sp sprinkling MIDI over the top. Mm. Or, you know, some an ambient thing that is, has no rhythm to it washing underneath uh, other MIDI music that's in there, or any combination thereof. Yeah, or, or making your ambient wash be, you know, MIDI-based and yeah. maybe, you know, randomized or dynamic in some way. Yeah. And then fly in some full frequency stingers over the top, which are pre-recorded. Other right? way, other right. way around. Or right. like all your instruments are MIDI, but you need a vocal track that is, um, you know, wave files, mm. just diced up into phrases. Sure. So, all of these things and the degree you could do a really simple adaptive score this way, or a really complex one. I think mm. it's just up to the what that what each game might need. I, I think it's. It comes back to that, right? It it really does depend on what the game so, needs and so to support so its gameplay. I, I think like the sort of the the uh, there's some like classic example of what you what a, if you take a full Hollywood orchestral score, which is sort of this benchmark thing that suddenly people started to do when we got to BCM audio in games, right? If mm -hmm. you wanted to do something like that fully in MIDI. You would need quite a few instruments and separate it out, and you know it would take a huge amount of memory, right? Um, there's, there, I think there's hybrid approaches, you know, towards that end as well. Obviously, one approach would be yes, have a a gigabytes worth of orchestral samples, right? Hello, uh, was it Garretton's Gigas, you know, the one gigabyte full orchestra thing that he had. Um, with MIDI files, and, and that could work pretty well. It wouldn't sound like the London Symphony, but um, you could you could really do some convincing uh, work and, and really nail the interactivity with something like that. But again, you could do a hybrid where you do go in and record um, phrases and so forth, full orchestra, combined with other orchestral samples. Um, you know, and it, it, I don't think it has to be totally huge in terms of memory, it, especially on console, it, it could be pulled off. Yeah. Well, maybe this circles back around to what you were saying, Rodney, about, you know, reaching out to other sample bank manufacturers. But uh, are we standing at the beginning of what will become kind of a an unnecessary separation between tools, right? Uh, like, is there really going to be a difference moving forward between a reactor sampler and a wise sampler should there be well, and or are we just going to get to the place where we are just licensing the library it works in our DAW it works to a to varying degrees of size in our uh, in our game engines and we just have a unified instrument libraries that can be licensed and used across both environments right that's that 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 second uh proposition that you had i think is probably where it would start because i i think for sample developers who aren't familiar with game audio tools at all if they don't even they work in the industry or anything like that at all which most of them don't um they they would probably 
want to be able to figure out a way to quickly make a version of it, you know, for WISE or what have you, that kind of thing, and then just have it be licensed from there. That's that's kind of what I see happening first. Um, but to be able to have, you know, to like I I don't know. I just I'm trying to think forward like ten years from now. Like where where could it be, where you're basically ordering and buying one version of the engine and or of the of the library itself, whatever format it would be in, if contact is still king or what have you. But then you would have these other either versions that you could license, either they're separate or they're part of the original purchase. I'm not sure how, how that would work out. I guess it depends on how the companies work together. But um, that's that's kind of where I, I, I see it going because that way, if especially if the tools, like if WISE were kind of, you know, trying to align itself with the way Contact does things from Native Instruments or something like that, which which wouldn't be a bad choice, you know, because there's so many things that seems to be the uh, the Akai of today, you know, as uh, Alex Brandon said. So um, it's it certainly seems like that that's probably going to be the case, at least initially, you know, like it, it's it, it certainly feels that way, you know. I was going to say, but uh, where's Akai now? So yeah, where true. will Contact be in five years? Where's Giga Sampler now? Uh, right. exactly. <laughs> they had their yeah. moment in the sun. Yeah. No, so, but, know, but, but, but I wanted to, uh, Damien, get back to one little thing. But I wasn't, I wasn't trying to say, like, how much RAM should we have or that kind of thing or, like, put limits to it and say, where can we go now? Because all of those things are really easily solved technology-wise. I mean, if you look at the early sampler and if you since we are on this history buff, you know, uh, the, the 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 way the samplers worked in the past was not that you load every single sample into memory you would stream it into memory and we do a ton of streaming of things into memory mm -hmm. in games we're actually really really good at that in games we stream texture yeah. we stream dialogue we stream sounds we stream music all of the stuff streams at the same time from this poor little hard drive getting hammered but <laughs> we actually know how to optimize for that quite well so you know it, it it doesn't seem unfeasible to me to come up with something that works just like it did you know a couple years in the past and and figure out a way to make sure that the streaming of you, these samples you, works quickly but so ram and hard drive space isn't the real constraining factor on mobile anymore mm. i mean as much obviously to a degree ram is but there's gigs of ram now in these devices yeah but again it comes back to circles back to what does the game need does the game right. need that higher level of interactivity? And like you were saying, hearkening back to linear FPS, you know, the degree of interactivity that that gameplay style required was much lower than the amount of gameplay music interaction that a game like Peggle Blast required. Well, yeah, um, yeah exactly. I've, I've, one good point about that is you might see completely fresh new orchestrations that we haven't seen for a while. Like, a one sure. simple optimization, instead of using a full orchestra, would be to have a string quartet play. And yeah. I remember from Bad, Com Bad Company 1, Battlefield Bad Company 1, where they suddenly changed the score to a string quartet, which wasn't done for shooters at the time. It sounded amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. People can get creative with, like, constraints, and super cool ideas can come out of that, for sure. You know, sometimes yeah. being forced definitely helps that. Yeah. So, well, so not to circle back to the technology side, but, uh, but I think it's really interesting. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> uh, you know, Rodney, you were talking a bit about uh, tying your keyboard as a control service into WISE and auditioning 
your sample banks through that. And I guess I'm, I'm putting the question to both of you, you know, once you have turned WISE into a sample playback device like a contact or like any other sampler inside of a DAW VST instrument, isn't it the same thing? Aren't, aren't, aren't you effectively doing the same thing? And now the question becomes, you know, if you could write MIDI directly into a middleware tool, does the difference between a DAW and middleware for music compositions start to dissolve? And is that one of the directions where, where you see this going? Or are we still in kind of a right tool for the job kind of thing, where you'll still want to be composing and even maybe sample bank creation in an external tool, and then WISE just becomes, or FMOD or middleware X becomes just a dumb um, sample playback device. You know, that kind of gets to workflow, right? And uh, the article I wrote, New Daw Rising, kind of gets to this where I do see uh, our middleware becoming the DAW of the future, where um, the only thing we're doing in our traditional linear DAWs is pre-production. For instance, you know, I could I see a world where even even during pre-production, if I have sample banks in Wise that are existing, if we get rid of the latency, I don't want to have duplicate sample banks on both. I want to just point uh, Nuendo straight to Wise, playback Rodney's cool sample banks straight from Wise, even if I'm composing in Nuendo. Right. Right. And therefore, because even if I have duplicate sample banks, one in contact, one in um, wise, there's subtle differences, differences to how they respond and how they, you know, what does this velocity bring to, the, to it and how it'll sound in a mix. Um, so I want to immediately go over there as quickly as possible. If it wasn't for the latency, I would go straight there. Um, another point in general we should be bringing up, because we've been talking about samplers and sampling in this, but is just pure synthesis coming back? You know, right. yeah, you know well, there's already <laughs> there's the already blocks with me. So, oh yeah, no, I think it, it, first of all, a it's there. We have synth one already in Wise uh, that we're playing with, and it works really well. And um, not to mention just the tone generators. Just tone generators, right? We can right. trigger those. Um, so we got lots of cool little toys already, and with this whole potential of having PD patches looped in. Does that not... Uh, it's good, yeah. No, okay. it's absolutely. The NZN audio guys and their heavy, heavy. technology. Boom! Yep. So, it's fully out there. So therefore, you know, somebody writes an FM synth for WISE. You know, somebody writes a different type of additive synthesis. Some more emphasizing the lean economy needs and some leaning on just fat and not worrying about the CPU usage. Um, so all of that is going to be happening, but I do think I see... You know, the more time goes on, the evolution is, I see more of my composition time being spent in the interactive tool. Sure. And so, the flow between them breaking down. You know, so I think there's a couple bridges to, to cross. Uh, for one, and it's on the tool side to uh, stop using crappy PC drivers as their output buses. Yes. Um, you know, the, usually the output straight to the Windows output drivers. And for one, they are jittery as shit. They uh, update at irregular times. And if one thing is critical to professional audio, it's timing. Uh, especially for music, but for sound design just as much. 
and uh, the, so for me, it's like getting ASIO drivers in for tools like that would be first step. Shouldn't be too difficult either. It's I I'd be surprised if WIS takes too long with that because yeah, it's a, plus one vote. <laughs> and the other side would be the DAW side, and they're moving full steam ahead, or at least Steinberg is. Uh, yeah. At this point, you know they they're definitely seeing this this street happening. Uh, and with game audio connect them. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm very excited about that. If these two DAWs feel seamless with each other, yeah. then, because it would be years and years before Wise ever did all the editing functionalities that you can do in Nuendo, if ever. Um, so having that seamless link between the two is marvelous. Yeah. Right, right, I agree. And then later on, as we know, the guys that left Sibelius or whatever, they're now part of Steinberg, and they're building the next great, you know, um, notation software that's going to either be standalone and or built right into Nuendo and Wise or, or Nuendo and Cubase. That's that to me. It seems like it's this giant peak that we're going to arrive at here in just a couple of years. It's going yeah. to be huge. And I can imagine sort of this this start now of communication between these tools develop into a standard possibly uh, i know that the the nuendo game audio connect is not wy specific it's an open thing and if any company has a history in creating standards that others can dive into it's definitely steinberg i mean they're definitely at the at the at the core of what we can do in DAWs uh, with vst um uh so you know if well, not at the core, but at least in the core of being open and transparent and having everybody else dive into that ecosystem. So uh, uh, it, once you sort of start to see that happening, I hope that others will sort of take onto it and we start to see this, syn well, not synergies, right? But, but we start to see things going back and forth between the two. And you can actually start to do a little bit of interactivity on the door side. And then as soon as it makes sense, you're in the game, you do things in the tool side, and then that moves straight back into your door and those things become one thing. Um, you know, we've been at Guerrilla, we've been working on, uh, and I've mentioned this before in public, so I can talk about it now, is this Burforce integration uh, for a, a long time. And what I'm starting to see now is that the uh, iteration time and the communication with team members on working on a sound is much faster. Like. You open a sound in our tool set and you want to uh, and somebody else created that sound and you want to adjust the EQ a little bit. It no longer is this horrible thing where you say to the guy, hey, you made the sound six months ago. I don't like the bass in it. Can we take it out or change it out or reduce it? And they go, uh, well, I had it somewhere on my previous PC. Uh, I don't have that plugin anymore. Uh, I don't know, man, let's just start from scratch. You know, that's that's <laughs> the story I've I've been hearing since I've been in the industry. So yeah, yeah what yeah. we're seeing now is oh yeah, okay, press one button, poof, new end of session opens, change your EQ, export, boom, done, it's in the game. And that is a huge improvement. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's that workflow piece of it, right? Yeah. Falling into place. Yeah. Uh, well, exciting times. I think we should find a way to tie it up with a little bit of bow. I think there was a, a so, good amount of optimism on the in the last few statements about maybe the future direction. I have well, uh, to help with this. 
could we talk? I'd like to ask Rodney about, you know, you built this. This might help wrap it up. Uh, you built this parallel sample bank that you've now in Wise. Uh, do you have notions about how to license? So let's talk about the financial side and how we can grow this side of the world because um, it's a new business model as well as a new technique for folks. So what's your what's your thinking on that with your new sample set? Yeah, well, now that I have this put together, which was, you know, sort of a thing of um, curiosity, you know, as, as well as like, you know, could I reconstruct this in a, in a game engine kind of thing? Um, what I foresee coming maybe first down the road might be something similar to what we see with the Unity web store, where you have all these different assets for sale. They could be sound effects collections. They could be artistic things. I think on some of the last demos that I worked on, I purchased a few things when I was using Unity to try to do an in-game demo of, of, of stuff. And it was really fun just to spend like a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks on, hey, I'm going to pull this little like this um, this uh, this collect this industrial section of town down from from the web, open it up in Unity and start attaching audio to it and doing all these things. And I, I bought a couple of like uh, third party modules from the same store, yeah, um, you know, so that I could I, I could increase the capability of the audio in Unity four at the time, um, and it was just so seamless and easy. Like what. What I would imagine would be similar to that, where, you know, you create a sample library. Because going forward, my plan is to create the sample library in contacting, and while it, while parallel, also generating it in Weiss as I go. Um, and, and and I'm also going to take take a look at Fmod just to see what capabilities I have there as well. And then if there's any level of consistency between them all, it's going to make perfect sense to be able to have these at the ready in case anything like that down the road comes along. So that's that's kind of an interest in mind, just being in game audio like we all are. Uh, as as well as being a sample developer, so I'm I'm hoping that whether it ends up being something where like it's a it's a one cost thing or it's a separate license thing that is purchased later, maybe maybe for a little bit less, you know that kind of thing uh, compared to what maybe the contact library might be, um, where as you know kind of what what guy did when he called out during the Peggle two talk was yeah, it was I was laughing because it was a little bit of a smack in the face of all the other composers that were out there that were writing all this music and just tossing it over the fence on an FTP, and then you ask them, well, how does it sound in the game? Oh, well, I don't know. You know <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I got paid for the gig, and they have it, and it's working great, as far as I know, kind of thing, whereas the interactive nature of, of games like Peggle 2 and, and Blast are, um, are a testament to paying attention to that detail and being able to construct your own WISE projects and put that stuff together and then hand something like that over, I think would be much more beneficial. So that's what I'm hoping to do with the sample stuff is, you know, if there's if there's ever a store or something like that that pops up down the road, that I that I will be ready. Like, you know, like my, my goal is to be a launch title of something like that. I think it'd be really awesome. fun, even if there's simple niche libraries that I tend to create, you know. Um, even the next one's a niche library. I'm not writing the next orchestra or anything like that. You know, recording that stuff is so expensive. So, and but I think that's you're you're onto the you know the grassroots nature of I think where this is going to take off. Uh, I think Damon, you and I were talking about it where it's going to be sample makers like yourself that are going to really kick off this revolution, not not the uh, the big you know the big ones at first. Uh, it's just a there the, my history tells me that the big sample makers are uh, afraid of a new market and also paranoid of losing their samples. So there's no way to bundle it in this thing. So it, it really is going to start with 
people in their in their bedrooms making sample banks and making them available on community sites and making a little money on the side hopefully you know hmm. right and the recognition that comes with that right it's the i think the idea that maybe being part of a early adopter situation yeah. like that would mean that oh if if you're the only thing in in a sample bank asset store that maybe there's 10 games that year that use your sample bank and then all of a sudden you like hear a trend across a few different games and they all have whatever guitar harmonics at their core of their composition right. <laughs> hey whoa that was like a aesthetic for a minute right and and that kind of circles back around too right um but i think uh i think there's some interesting things to be done there i know that uh stefan schutz at gdc this year was talking about this sample bank and asset store kind of methodology for um, for both content, sample-based content, as well as implementation. So like being able to sell a ambient system oh, that includes yeah. a bed plus one shots plus randomization and positioning, right? Sure, that, sure. That being able to bundle that and having a standardized format for um, licensing it to you know, in a creative commons kind of where, where you can have, you know, both the attribution as well as compensation and, you know, mm. all the levels of that. Uh, yeah, that's true. So I'm wondering, Rodney, uh, do you know when you will release guitar harmonics for WIs? Oh, I don't know. I'm not quite sure of the, what the path of that would be right now. Um, it's still something maybe a little bit up in the air. I'm not, I'm, I, it's kind of up to the company and uh, whatever their, their time frame is. I was just trying to jump on, this idea early enough so I had something ready, you know? Yeah. Like um, like we were talking about sample size earlier, like obviously there's still optimization that can be done. If it's the cache folder that I'm looking at here for the uh, converted format here for the Weiss project, my overall thing was like seven point something gigs. The cache folder is still 4.76 gigs. So it's using less samples and it's using the uh, the Vorbis auto detect high, but obviously there's room for improvement there. You know, sure. it's, not, it's one of these things where um, additional, um, you know, free, uh, frequency uh, uh, detection algorithms and stuff could help out with this kind of thing. Um, so, and, I mean, you know, it's just a you know, Rodney, harmonics library. It's going to be, it's too big to probably load into a game right What now. if you had, um, you know, you had your your big version, the four gigabyte yes. mega version, but you also had uh, other ones that were tiered down also available. Not You have to reduce the big one because somebody might want to yeah. use that. That's but correct. Just, hey, I've got my 100 megabyte version. I've got my 10 megabyte really scaled down version. Yeah, that would be really cool. Plus, you know, using a tool like Likewise, it's one of those things where the the end user, the sound designer, audio director, whoever, is going to have full control over those compression settings as well, because they're going to get right. the you know the actual waves or, or or whatever that are in there, and they can recompress to fit, or they can yank out the red robins too, or red robins, <laughs> the restaurant round robins. Yeah. yeah. So it's that that's something that. You know, with the larger version, could be that's that could be something in their control if they had the time for it. But it also makes sense to make these scaled down versions too, where maybe it's just a single sample, like the best one of the of the bunch. Yeah. So interesting functionality in the in the 2015 one version of Wise that allows you to define platforms. So you could now have, let's say, you know, five guitar harmonic sample bank platforms. You could have the high quality platform. And this would be something that you just change, uh, you know, the platform settings in Wise and just automatically, you know, communicates to the project. You know, what I would love to see is a tool that analyzes the game. 
So you have your score playing, you pay Peggle for half an hour and the, the analyzer finds out which samples didn't play at all. Like which nodes yeah. are you not using? Um, just contact does that. Oh, it does. It does. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. interesting. Just get rid of everything, you know, that you're not using. Mm -hmm. It's a brilliant feature. <laughs> That's something I could easily see those guys adding, you know, down the road as this matures a little bit. Yeah. How is this going to affect where we are with games? Because one of the things we currently have is very separate in a way is music and sound effects. If you huh. want to take a big... You know, I know PopCap is, a, is, a, is an exception to this, but generally speaking, the sound designers live in-house, the composers live in the outhouse, and uh, they have the nice outdoors, you know, they get the big checks, but they are very irregular. So, um, and the sound designers are in-house and it's a totally different world. But this sort of means to me a little bit that the the composers will have to move in-house a little bit and it will probably change the dynamic a little bit and might even see some cross-pollination like are we finally going to also see sounds meet what's going on with the music a bit more and what you know what what's not happening right now that might happen in the next two years because of this um, I'm happy to to jump in here. Um, <laughs> this kind of I've been, as you know, I do blogs now and again, uh, written blogs, and uh, I would, sometimes I start with the title, just as a, a kickoff, and uh, the, the title of this next one might be might raise a little controversy. It's uh, why do sound designers like games more than composers? <laughs> <laughs> and it's totally in jest. Totally in jest, of course, because obviously everybody likes games. Um, but the point is there's a cultural thing as well as an employment issue. You brought up the, the fact that most composers uh, are freelance or the majority working composers. Um, but I think even beyond that, com uh, when you get a group of sound game sound designers together, they're going to geek out about game technology, okay? Right, most of the time. Mm -hmm. There's recording. There's the outside stuff. You get a group of composers together, and they're probably going to geek out more about recording the orchestra more than about the game technology they're using. Is that a fair assumption? You mean you're not going to geek out about circle of fifths, or <laughs> maybe? But <laughs> they, yeah. There's many other ways that composers geek out. Right. Um, <laughs> So there, there's that cultural thing. We have to get composers <laughs> to, to embrace um, games and nonlinear media as a medium, much like they do with film and linear media. Um, and that's the first task. I think the job, you know, where we lie and sit will take care of itself if that starts solving itself. Because I don't think the tools do allow for someone to be out of house to do this stuff, as we've demonstrated. You, you definitely need someone in-house to be able to make those connections, make it happen politically, and even maybe even uh, technically to make sure that the right things are in place. It doesn't necessarily have to be the composer. It, I think in the short run, to get us over this hurdle, more composers in-house, 
would help a great, great deal, you know, because then you're there with that team the whole length. But there's a big shift that has to happen that's partly cultural, partly yep. technical. Well, I think you see it getting better, right? I think of uh, Kenny Young and Brian De Oliveira yeah. on, um, on the tearaway stuff recently, where the two of them, because Kenny is so embedded or has been so embedded in the media molecule development uh, with Brian operating as a, a composer from the outside, uh, it's that synergy between those two things that allows Brian as a composer to deliver in a technical way towards the system that Kenny's helped orchestrate. That's right. Kenny's been great at that with, yep. with um, you know, composers like Winifred work with him that way. Yep. Um, so, th and I do want to clarify that this last couple of years, I've mm -hmm. seen a lot more really, really great things done with scores, a lot more composers really rolling up their sleeves and taking this stuff seriously. Yep, and it's it's that bridge again that gets built between yeah. when it, when a composer is out house, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the bridge that gets built between the developer and the composer that really allows uh, for the leveraging of a system and or the composer's passion for interactivity, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe that's a, it's a little chicken or egg, right? Was, is it the tools that have enabled that? Or is it the uh, composers who are more passionate about games finding their way in? To be honest, if more composers were in-house, the improvements on the tools would come much quicker. Because if you're there every day complaining that you can't do what you want to do, then you will get the yeah. tools that you want. The only reason I have, I think, <laughs> one of the most amazing tool sets in the world, you know, is because I'm bitching to the guys making it every day. And if you're <laughs> yes. a composer and all you do is deliver WAV files and somebody else has to deal with it, you know, then you never even know what you're missing out on. So Correct. It, to me... It seems like, you know, and you see, and I think PopCap is the obvious example for what happens when you change that. Because suddenly you see, you know, to me, not the most obvious games to have to be on the forefront of interactive scoring, right? But the honest truth is that Peggle 2 was on the forefront of that. It isn't the most obvious game to be that, you know... And the only reason I think it is, is because that you are in-house over there. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason that can happen. Definitely helped, and especially and, as it evolves. And and I guess, you know, because you are pushing it as an in-house, and you guys are using WIs, suddenly that might shift the entire industry, because everybody else is lucky enough that they can use the same tool set that you guys use. Right. You know, the other interesting thing about being in-house, it's not just the tools, although that's really important. Um, there's sort of the setting the the cultural groundwork within any within any given company for being uh, willing to try a more adaptive score because uh, that groundwork with the leadership of any company so audio directors in general can help that but if it's a composer slash audio director then that stuff tends to happen uh, more readily if you know if that's the direction that that composer director is pushing so, yeah, at this juncture, it's critical. Go ahead, Ronnie. Excellent. Actually, this is an interesting switch of subject.
is this your experience as well, guy, with convincing the rest of the team of your ideas when it comes to music that you basically just show them? One of the main theses is, is I never describe my interactive techniques to a team. I just say, basically I do a, a game capture with a linear score that demonstrates what it's going to bring and I just show them. Just here's what it's going to sound like and then then the questions come up of, wow, how, how are we going to do that? What's, that? What's the tech? What's this? But, but that wow impact, uh, you know, there was a moment when I did that for, you know, did an early, early sketch for Peggle 2 and brought in the executive producer who instantly just went, whoa, we got to do that. Boom. I had financial backing just in three minutes of showing them that video. I had financial backing and therefore the team backing. Same thing with the engineers. They saw that and went, I'll help you do that. I'll help you do that. So, and so does yeah. Ever, do you run into trouble um, getting people to understand the non-linearity of that? Because when you're showing a video, it, is it immediately clear what is happening interactively, even if it's enough, intuitively? That's right. And hopefully it is because you have to create a, a demo, whether it's linear or whatever, that's compelling sonically. It can't just yeah. demo the interactivity. Mm. If it if it sounds like, oh, this is just my temp thing and I've mm. sketched it with, with this, it's not going to sell it. You have to put all of your sonic abilities to make the thing sound dynamite. And when they see it's a picture of, of a game that they're working on, they'll pretty, they knew immediately what I was up to. They didn't know how or what was, how it was going to come together. But they could, they could instantly see uh, the interactivity, even in a linear video demo. Yeah. Then, of course, questions followed. But that impact, the impact was, was immediate. Right. You know. Yeah. Super important. I, I do it. It's, I live by that now. Yeah. I would say also in this subject, GDC 2015, very interesting, was the talk by Damien. Help me out. Okay. SCE. She was on the show. Oh, Holcomb. No. Oh, yeah. Joanna Orland. Thank you. So, yeah. Joanna Orland's talk was actually about this, like coming up with the, the, the vision for a project, not just for music, but for the entire sound right. design style and showing that in in a video and like finding out the different style guides you could do. All right. All right. Mm -hmm. Looks like we got to wrap this up, but it's, I think this is enough to talk about for another 56 yeah. episodes. Um <laughs> It's good to talk about music again a little bit. It's been a while, so. See? See? Uh-huh. Circle back around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Get some more composers on here, yeah. That's good. Yeah, we'll like work it. on that. We'll work on that. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, for rounding up with us today. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's good. It was good, good to talk. see you, Rodney. Yeah, you too. Have, have fun with the project, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Cheers to that. Oh, and uh, if you're interested in checking out Rodney's libraries, you go to soundcues.com with a C. I keep typing <laughs> it with a Q and not with a C. Yeah, it's actually .net, but that's okay. Oh, Com was taken by, .net. by by a school in the in the East Coast. I couldn't get it, so that <laughs> was whatever. <laughs> we'll link to it in the show notes. Yes, but, uh, well, thank you. And also, of course, guys, blog posts that are relevant to this. Yep.
We'll put that all in the notes. And hey, did we throw around some crazy acronyms or talk about some things that you just don't quite get? Drop us a line at inbox at Game Audio Podcast, and we'll try to clarify any of the crazy things that we got down to talking about. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks for listening to the Game Audio Podcast, and we'll see you next time.